you got your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to the book of Jude. A little book, one chapter is right before Revelation, so start at the end and work backwards. It'll save you a boatload of time. But we're starting this study in this little book today, and uh, want to start and first with reading the first four verses, and then we'll get into it. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been around Desert Springs long, you know we love to study, take books at a time. And one of the big things that we always remind you is that to understand context is king. So to have an understanding of, you know, who wrote, who were they written to, and all of that. So I want to take a few moments this morning and kind of talk, just give you a little bit of an introduction to this little book. The first question is, is who wrote it? Who is Jude? Because other than the book of Jude, have you ever read about a Jude in the Bible? The answer to that, is, of course, is no, but not really. So here's the thing. We believe that Jude is the half-brother of Jesus. You say, where do you get that? Matthew chapter 13 puts it like this. Is this, and they're talking about Jesus, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? You say, but that's not Jude. Well, okay, but think about it. There are eight Judases in the Bible. There's one you probably know best. His name was Iscariot, right? So after he denies and betrays Jesus, how would you like to say, oh, I'm a follower of Christ. What's your name? Judas. In fact, have you ever met a Christian family that named their kid Judas? <laughs> no, right? Right. It kind of ruined the name. So, so Judas, Jesus' half-brother... Uh, changed it and shortened it. Actually, in the Greek, it's, it's, it's the same root word, to Jude. Um, but interesting to me how he identifies himself here. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So why doesn't Jude just tell us, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus? Wouldn't that have been simpler? And if that was simpler, you've got to ask the same question about James when he wrote his book. Why didn't he say that? Because he didn't say it either. And and I think there's a, a very specific reason why they didn't say it. You see, especially to Jewish folk, their heritage, their ancestry, their tie to Abraham is what brought them into the covenant, right? They are a son of Abraham, a child of Abraham. And in Jesus, our relationship with him is not based upon genetics, right? It's not based on a family tie. It's based on faith. 
So they're, they're, the point here is that they're, they're not followers of Christ today because they're, they're blood brother or half-blood brother. They're followers of Christ by faith because if you remember in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 7, it tells us that even his brothers did not believe in him. But then through the crucifixion and the resurrection, they came to believe. Because by the time you get to Acts chapter 1, it says they were all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So now they have a relationship with him that is way different but it's not based on the fact of blood it's not based on the fact of oh you know genetics heritage is based on the fact that they come to him by faith so hence jude the bond servant of jesus christ my relationship with jesus is but who knows who jude is well pretty much everybody knows james because james becomes the de facto leader of the church in Jerusalem, so the, the brother James. So Jude, half-brother Jesus, and obviously half-brother because, remember, God was Jesus' father and Joseph was their father. Mary was their mother. When was it written? There's not a lot of inside you know, textual stuff that gets to this. Uh, but most Bible commentators believe it was probably written in the late 60 AD, someplace probably between 68 and 70. And there's a lot of nuance here. And if you want to get into the nuance, be happy to talk to you about it. But I thought today we just fly at, you know, 50,000 foot view. The idea is here. The reason they think it happened, he wrote this book before 70 AD, is number one, a lot of ties to 2 Peter, which we'll see in a minute, which was written about the same time. But secondly, his whole argument is, is that false teachers are going to be judged. God is going to judge them ultimately. Even though they seem to get away with it for a, long, for a while, God brings judgment. Well, think about this. The... The Pharisees, the teachers, the leaders, they all rejected Christ, right? They rejected him as the, as the Messiah. They were all false teachers. Jesus said judgment is going to come. Do you remember when that judgment came? AD 70. Titus, the Roman emperor, came, destroyed Jerusalem. I mean, the temple is taken down brick by brick, and, and Israel is taken into complete captivity. They're scattered everywhere. So the argument would be if Jude was writing and he was making his point about judgment coming to false teachers and it was after 70 AD, that would have been this like bright living color example. You all know, right? Jesus, now Jerusalem is destroyed, but he doesn't use it. So the, the feeling is, is that probably it was written sometime a little before that, and that puts it kind of in that area of when Nero is still in charge of Rome and all that. The audience, primarily the, that sense of Jewish believers that are scattered around. You say, well, why primarily Jewish believers? Well, he alludes to a lot of Old Testament stories that would have very much of a Jewish background. He also alludes to a story that's not in the Bible, but is in the Jewish Apocrypha, the book of Enoch. And we'll get to that. We'll, we'll look at it. And again, probably Gentiles would have had very little familiarity with that. So the idea is Jewish believers as they're scattered. And one of the things that we know from what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is that the 
not only the apostles, but the brothers of Jesus, they traveled and they spoke. And so people were familiar with them, not just in Jerusalem, but literally in Asia Minor and over in Macedonia. In fact, Paul writes, I think it's 1 Corinthians 9, he writes to the Corinth and he said, hey, do Barnabas and I the only ones that don't have a right to bring a believing wife? Do you remember that passage? He says, you know, can't we be like Peter and the apostles and the brothers of our Lord? So they seemed, even in Corinth, over in, in Greece, seemed to be familiar with Jude and James because of this. Now, some unique features. Uh, somebody last week came and said, hey, you're going to do Jude. That's the most ungodly book in the Bible. And I went, hmm? And then I started reading it again, and I was picked it up, and is that he uses that word ungodly like six times. It's a big issue with him. Uh, there's another piece that you, we've already kind of seen. He likes triads. So look there in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant Jesus Christ, to those who are called, beloved, and kept. Look at verse 2. May mercy, peace, love be multiplied to you. If you go on down, he's telling stories about how judgment comes. He tells three stories and illustrations. So he kind of, he likes to emphasize and emphasize in the rhythm of three. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, the other unique feature is that there's a really strong tie between the book of Jude and 2 Peter, especially chapter 2 and 3 of 2 Peter. Um, in fact, you'll notice some of the things. Uh, he talks about the false teacher's condemnation being from long ago. He talks about how they deny the sovereign Lord, how the angels, which, which the interesting thing about the angels in confinement, really, Jude and 2 Peter are the only two books that mention that piece of it uh, in any detail. So the fact, in fact, some people have thought that maybe... Second Peter was written and Jude uses it as a source. Or that Jude was written and Peter uses that and explains a little bit more. I, again, there's no, there's no really uh, internal evidence that that's the case. But there is a great deal of, of similarity and synergy between the two. Lastly, the theme is this idea of stand firm in the Lord. It's really found in verses 20 to 23. But you, so he finally gets there through all that he said, but, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even even the garment polluted by the flesh. So his whole point here in contending, which we're going to see today, really what he means is you build yourself up and you stand strong and you then are able to help others who are taken by, by, the, uh, by the lies. So that's kind of an introduction to the book. As you read it, what you got to understand is this, that as believers... We live in a world that is most often hostile to our beliefs. 
right? So when we came to faith in Christ, we, we got a, a new point of view, right? We got to change life in this, that this world no longer is our home. Uh, we don't live for today like the world lives. We live for another day when we're going to stand before Jesus. Our, our value system got changed. Uh, we lay up for ourselves treasure on, in heaven as opposed to here on earth. It just, it all got changed. And what happens is, is that that new value system, that way that we look at life and do life is, is, is not really compatible with the world. And so it brings conviction. It, it makes the world not really like us. It begins to get more hostile. In fact, typically that hostility grows. Best example I can give you is Jesus. Jesus shows up, completely different worldview, completely different idea of what's going on. And at first they just kind of tolerated him, right? But the longer his ministry went on, the more angry, the more hostile they got to him as he spoke truth. To the point that it, it culminates on that morning before Pilate. Pilate says, what do you want me to do with him? And they all yell, crucify him. He goes, he's not done anything wrong. Crucify him. He says, I can't find any fault with him. Crucify Crucify him. You want me to give you know, one person? You want me to give him or Barabbas? Give us Barabbas. Crucify him. The hostility has grown and grown and grown. And what we've been told is that that's exactly, you know, Jesus said, hey, if they did this to me, they're going to do it to you as my followers. You know, we've been very blessed here in America. We get sheltered from a lot of that. They tell us that in the last 120 years, there have been more people that have been martyred for the name of Jesus than the first 1,900 years of, of the church age. There's a lot of persecution. Now, one of the things that many of us see and understand is even the hostility here in our own country is beginning to grow, right? Right? Uh, we've seen it around the world, uh, fortunately not here in Arizona, but some, even some of our states where even in this whole COVID, where churches have been gone after very specifically, the hostility is picking up. I read a, man, it was a fascinating but concerning article in Newsweek magazine of all places a couple weeks ago, written by one of our chaplains who is in a, talking to a subcommittee in Congress and just expressing concern that, that our own Defense Department in some of their documents now, when they list extreme religious groups that need to be watched, put evangelical Christians there on the same part of Hamas and Al-Qaeda and the KKK. And so... When you think about hostility, it comes from without on the one hand, but it also comes from within. It's almost like we have an enemy. Wouldn't that be weird, right? And so he, he tries to snuff us out. He tries to, to get us discouraged. He tries to get us to walk away from without, and that doesn't work. He, he comes from within, and Jesus told us that was going to happen. He says, beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. You know, they're going to look like you. They're going to smell like you. They're going to act like you for a little bit. But what you're going to find out is inwardly the ravenous wolves. And oh, by the way, do you know what wolves do with sheep? They take them to lunch. In fact, they have them for lunch. Couldn't help but think, as I was thinking of this, if uh, Paul 
when you met with the elders of, uh, at Ephesus where he had pastored for a couple years. And he says this, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples from the faith. Folks, there's hostility. There's hostility from without. There's hostility from within. And so as Jude opens this book, and his point is going to be, you need to contend for the, for the faith. You need to build yourself up and, and be prepared because this world is not our home. Did you notice how he started it, though? Verse 1. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept in Jesus Christ. His, his whole point is this, folk, is listen. You don't, you don't need to fear, but you can be secure. Because what you've got to understand is you are the chosen. You know, God, God knows right where you are. He cares about you. In fact, he chose you. And I don't want to get into all the theological ramifications of, of election and all that. But the point is, is that we often think about how we choose God, right? We came to believe in him, and that's true. But the point is, he also chose us. And when you see it in Scripture so often, the whole reason the author brings it in is a point of security that is not just simply that God chose or that we chose God, but He chose us. He cares about us. He knows where we are. By the way, you're the beloved of the Father. You know what it means to be the beloved? <laughs> you're the favorite. You're the apple of His eye. You're, you're the kid, when you, you walk into his present, man, his, his, his eyes just light up, his countenance, because you are the beloved. And oh, by the way, you're, you're the kept. Now, what's interesting, and I'm no Greek scholar, please, <laughs> that is for sure the truth. But one of the hard things in translation between Greek and English is prepositions. And one of the questions here is uh, like a New American Standard, it says, kept for Jesus Christ. If you have the NIV or another one, it says, kept by. And I actually, you know, first of all, I think if you dig deep, you probably come to the same idea. But in our language, I actually think the, the preposition by Jesus Christ is better here. I think it ties into what he says in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. I, I think what, what Jude is trying to remind them, folks, we, yeah, we have in this hostile world, right? We got it from without, we got it from within. And I'm going to call you to contend earnestly for the faith. But you got to understand, you are the chosen. You are the ones who are beloved. You are the ones who are kept by the power of God. He, he, he has you. You are in the palm of his hand. So therefore, you don't need to fear. You don't need to panic. You don't need to get all upset because you belong to him and he holds you in the palm of his hand. And, and, and with all the hostility, he knows right where you are. One of my concerns has been that uh, here in America, you know, our, our country's changing, right? Now, 
it's different than when I was growing up. I didn't, and I'm not old enough to remember. They, they tell us, and history would tell us that, you know, early they used to teach people to read by reading the Bible, right? And they would read the Bible every morning in school and all that. By the time I got there, that was already gone. But, but it's even different today from them. And I see, I, I see Christians getting so frustrated and upset. Folk, his whole point is this. The world's going to be hostile to us. And it's going to come from without, and it's going to come from within, but that's okay. You're the chosen, right? He knows exactly where you are. You're the beloved. You're the one they're kept. You're in the hollow of his hand. There's security. Don't let it cause fear. Don't let it cause panic. Don't let it cause anxiety. He's got you. And then his call is in verse 3. He says, you know, I wanted to write this letter about our common salvation, about all that we have in Christ, and that would be awesome. But he said, he says this, but I felt the necessity to write to you to appealing that you contend earnestly. The idea here is that we are to strive vigorously for the truth of the gospel. The word that he uses there, contend, is a very strong word. He uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, talking about Uh, preparing and exercising and getting ready to run in the Olympic Games. It's the same Greek word he uses in that verse in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I have fought the good fight, right? The word fought is the same root word that he uses here. The idea is we're in a battle. We've got to contend. We've got to fight for this. We have to be intentional. We've got to, to give it. And the faith that he mentions here is both the body of truth that we have been given. In fact, notice he says once and for all, the foundational principles on which our faith system is built. But it's not just a body of truth. It's it's how you live it. It's the practice of it. Remember what I said, the word that he continually talks about over and over is the word ungodly. It's ungodly behavior. So when we think about the faith that has been delivered once and for all, yes, it is a body of truth and we need to defend that. But it's also a lifestyle, a Christ-likeness. You know, Jesus talks about how he came to, to make us like himself, that we would be holy as he is holy. And, and so it's both orthodoxy, the truth, and orthopraxy, the practice of living, of how God has called us to live. And so when we think of the truth side, what we know is that we are to contend for these things. And there are foundational truths, truths to which we can never compromise, truths to which we can never step away. In fact, years ago, probably early 1900s, as liberalism was sweeping Europe and the church there, starting to come to America, really starting to affect some of the mainline denominations at that point, the question became, all right, what are those fundamentals? What are those foundational things on which we can just not waver? And so they put together this list of five really simple things. Uh, 
in fact, you and I would be, have been a part of this group. In fact, they were called fundamentalists, which back in the day was not a bad term. It was a great term. We stand on the fundamentals. Now, obviously, today is viewed quite differently. We wouldn't use that term about ourselves. But in truth, it is. We stand on the five fundamentals. This is what makes up Christianity. And if you fail or you walk away from any one of these five things, you're not talking about biblical Christianity. And by the way, if you don't know these, you you should probably know them, write them down. So here they are. Number one, it's the verbal inspiration of Scripture. That all of Scripture, the entire Bible, from cover to cover, is the Word of God. And when we say inspired, it doesn't mean that it makes you feel good or that it inspires something in you, but it's actually God-breathed. This is exactly what God wanted us to know is in the Bible. Secondly, is the deity of Christ. That Jesus was born of a virgin, so he was fully God, that he was fully man. Number three, that his sacrifice, his death on the cross was the atonement for our sins. And it is the only atonement. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Peter, standing in Jerusalem, there in Acts chapter 4, said, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved but the name of Jesus. It's the only salvation for man's soul. Number four is that when Jesus died, they put him in the grave, and that same body that died came up out of the grave. He conquered death. He didn't just come out as a spirit. He didn't just come out as an idea. He bodily, physically came up out of that grave. And oh, by the way, one of these days, he's going to return physically. He's going to set up his kingdom. He is going to reign. Those are the five fundamentals. And so you think of the story that came out, what, about a month ago, a large progressive church in... um, in Nashville, saying we don't believe the Bible is inspired. We believe it's a great collection of ideas and thoughts that we should process through, but we don't believe that it's God's actual words to us. Well, quite honestly, they can call themselves whatever, but they are no longer Christian. That is the cardinal doctrines, and we stand, we can never walk away. These are the things that our faith is built upon. Now, but what you've got to understand is that there are other things that are less foundational. And I was talking to Robbie about this, of how do you make the difference? He, he likes the, and I, I thought it was good too, the idea of closed hand and open hand to the foundational things were closed hand. We, we just can never, never walk away from those truths. On other things, we have more of an open hand. Uh, there are good brothers and sisters in Christ disagree. I mean, you think about, for instance, the mode of baptism, you know, is it, is it immersion? Is it, is it sprinkling? What about, you know, gifts and the sign gifts or are they being used? What about prophecy? You know, Jesus is going to come back before the tribulation, in the middle of the tribulation, at the end. You know, those are things that, that we can disagree on. You know what? We're still in the faith, right? We're, we're still good believers. And here's my, here's my big concern. I've been wrestling with this all week. You know, we're starting this book of Jude, and yet you and I today live in cancel culture, right? And if you don't agree with me, then all of a sudden, it, your opinion is you're all wrong. You're, you're, I don't want nothing to do with you. That's the way our culture works, And what I want to remind us is, is that as we contend earnestly for the faith, 
for the, those foundational truths, for the foundational way that we are called to live. We must not become so rigid, so, so to be honest with you, full of ourselves, that we think that anybody who doesn't see it the way we see it are wrong and they're heretics and they're, they're wrong. Folks, I've got to be honest with you. If you and I sat down and talked theology long enough, we'd find a place where you and I don't agree. I can guarantee it. I mean, my dad was my mentor, right? I learned almost everything I know. I didn't agree with him on everything. In fact, I was thinking about it. I don't agree with Steve 20 years ago, right? He was back in Bible college. thought he knew everything. I realized, eh, you know. The point is... We, we can never waver. We can never uh, come to that point where we give on the fun fundamentals, but on the other issues, you know, we are to have grace. We are to understand that there, we see different things. And sometimes people say, well, why, why didn't the Bible just make it clear? And you go, have you ever seen how man's mind takes and twists things? Do you know how big the Bible would have to be for God to write about every piece of theology so that man couldn't screw it up? And I think it's by faith he causes us to lean in. And what's beautiful about this, and I've got to finish with this, is verse 2. It's, I think, how we're supposed to deal with this. How do we have the balance of standing for truth and yet be an understanding that on other things there needs to be grace. What he says here is this, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Now again, you got a preposition there and I'm going to argue the better preposition is not to you but it's in you. Because he just said you're the beloved of God and if he's going to be multiplied to you, how do you get more love than God's love for you? You can't. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think it's in you. That as you and I grow, we are to grow in our ability to show mercy, grace, compassion. Understanding some, some of these things we're going to see different ways. Right? And we can have fun conversations. But man, at the end of the day, we got to love each other. Right? Because we live in this hostile world. We can't be tearing each other down. We can't be attacking one another. We want to speak truth, but we want to speak it in love and in peace. You can imagine, again, you see it in our country in this cancel culture and there's so much anger and there's so much hatred and vitriol. We're to be people of peace and love. And the balance of how we do that is that we lean into Jesus and we allow him through his Holy Spirit to create and to develop this sense of mercy and peace and love in our life.